Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is a group from the Proof of Stake Alliance. Proof of Stake Alliance, or POSA, is an action-oriented nonprofit industry alliance advocating for forward-thinking public policies that foster innovation in rapidly growing, sustainable, multi-billion dollar proof-of-stake ecosystems. They bring together industry leaders and legal experts to fight for fair regulation that allows the industry to flourish. POSA recently published legal white papers on liquid staking. Liquid staking is a technological solution that provides liquidity and increased capital efficiency for participants in proof-of-stake blockchain networks. That is, users who stake their crypto assets receive transferable receipt tokens that evidence ownership of staked crypto assets and the network rewards that accrue in respect of such staked crypto asset. Joining me from POSA is Allison Mangirio, the executive director of POSA. We also have Alexander Griev, who's vice president in Tiger Hill Partners Government Relations Practice. And we're also joined by Justin Browder, a partner in Wilkie's Asset Management Department and co-chair of their Digital Works Practice. Last but definitely not least, we have Michael Selig, counsel in the Asset Management Department and a member of the Wilkie Digital Works Practice. I'm excited to speak about POSA, about the papers that have been authored and what staking and liquid staking looks like going forward in the crypto space. And I thought I'd start with you, Allison, to discuss the genesis block of the Proof of Stake Alliance. Where did this idea come from and what was the impetus for it? Sure. So Proof of Stake Alliance launched in 2019. And at that point in time, you had a lot of the first natively proof of stake calls L1s that were starting to come online. And some of the first staking as a service providers starting to be offer their services for folks who wanted to be able to engage in staking on these networks. And so a bunch of us came together and said, we need to make sure that if these protocols are going to be moving to proof of stake, more of them are going to be launching, that we have done our homework in terms of the legal and regulatory arguments that we need to be making, that we have advocates in place for the technology and that people are understanding what's actually going on here. So at that point in time, we launched by bringing together folks in the industry, which at that time was pretty nascent. I think, I think if I'm remembering correctly, there were two of the top 20 protocols that were proof of stake, as opposed to today, we have 19 of the top 20 that are proof of stake. And we really started to engage on two core issues. One was on 
whether staking as a service provider should be viewed as offering investment contracts, which I'm sure we can delve into in much, much more detail, but we've been working on this since 2019, and also on some of the tax implications, how staking rewards should be taxed. So that's how it came about. Those were the two key issues that we decided to focus on when we first formed the organization, which is a, I should mention, a membership organization and a C6. So that was how it came about. How did the initial team get built out? What was the process like in establishing this alliance? We were, at the beginning, a very scrappy, board-led organization. So you had Evan Weiss, who was the founder at that point in time, was running business at Bison Trails. And then you had representatives from some of the larger proof-of-stake protocols come together. At that point in time, I was working on Tezos. And we came together and said, look, if we need to both put our manpower outside of our day jobs behind ensuring that these conversations are being held, then that's something that we need to do. So as a board, we led the organization for first few years. And then just this past fall, I stepped in to run the organization full time. And Alex, to turn it to you, I'd love to hear your introduction to POSA and why you felt it was an important initiative to join and be a part of. Yeah, of course. So I'll screw with uh, Airhill Partners. We're a political and regulatory advisory firm based out of Washington, D.C. We've worked with a number of in the digital asset ecosystem and Proof of Stake Alliance, I, I think, is unique in crypto trade associations or advocacy organizations in that they're really laser focused on just a few specific issues and they've gone a mile deep on every single one of them. And so unlike some of the other initiatives out there where it's a bit more of a macro focus, POSA has really gone micro and working with them to kind of awareness about proof of state ecosystems and some of the very specific issues that are native to those ecosystems, to the technology stack has been a really rewarding experience. And it's also one that's incredibly important. And you see different participant organizations and how crucial this is to, to their business and also how crucial it is to anyone who's participating, whether you're an average individual staker who needs some clarity around your tax returns or you are someone who is looking to build an institutional grade as a service provider, you need legal clarity and you need regulatory clarity. And at this juncture, that clarity doesn't exist. And POSA has really been laser focused on trying to make that clarity widespread. Thanks for that background. So just in terms of diving a mile deep, POSA published two papers on liquid staking. Could you explain how liquid staking works and why this was an important area to go so deep on? Yeah, of course. So I think it's important to sure POSA's focus on these successive issues, similar to how the tech stack is focused or structured. So on, on kind of base level, you have these proof of stake blockchains. And you have your average individual participants who can stake or run their own node and stake tokens at that node to validate transactions. One level above that is you have staking as a service provider. So they help facilitate staking. They provide a technical service for average individuals who maybe don't have 32 ETH, but would like to participate in staking. And they help facilitate that um, in a kind of technical capacity. And then one kind of additional layer on top of that is this relatively newer innovation called liquid staking, where if I'm going to lock up my tokens, 
for a certain amount of time, I want to make sure that I still have receipt claim on those tokens and I can do things with those receipt claims. Mike and Justin will get into some of the, the legal conversation around this, but it's akin to a warehouse receipt where if I have a huge pallet of, I don't know, bottles of water, I'm not going to go trading the pallets around, but I might give you a receipt for the pallet and you can go pick it up at some other time. So at each level, there is, it gets increasingly complex and there are kind of legal reason, there's legal reasoning that we need to delve into. Um, and it's important, you have to kind of step back and think through who is writing the regulation in DC. And that is regulators who full-time are focused on maybe broader capital markets issues, and some fraction of their time is spent on crypto. And it's also Hill staff who have a ton on their plates. And maybe 10%, if you're lucky, of their time is spent on crypto. And the other 90% is spent on flood insurance or uh, bank regulation or something that's specific to their member's state or district. And so doing the hard work on our ends to think through how we need to think about these issues legally and building that kind of deep policy research uh, to then basically give a leg up to folks who have to think about this and actually write the legislation is a really worthwhile endeavor. And ultimately it's a team effort, both on the policymaker side and on the industry side to, to get to a product where we have the clarity that is needed for this innovation to continue growing and innovating. Maybe just one more thing to, to add to what Alex said. This is kind of Posa's bread and butter from the very beginning. We pull together working groups where we have the actual people who are building these companies, building these protocols, and who understand the technology deeply and bring them together with folks like Mike and Justin and a lot of the other legal experts that we pulled into the room so that we can produce actually substantive legal white papers and we're not advocating for a position that is solely just backed by policy considerations or by something that members might quote unquote want, but that we actually have done the homework, the legal research. And so we've done this from the very beginning on a host of different issues. This is the first time we've kind of open sourced these papers because we think given the current environment, it's incredibly crucial for people who are engaging in these ecosystems to be on the same page in terms of the arguments that we're making, the way that we're describing what's going on here. So it was very important to us in terms of both focusing on liquid staking, which we think is truly the future when it comes to staking and just the next evolution in terms of these protocols and how they're going to function, but also in terms of our priorities as an organization, making sure that we've made these papers and these arguments available, not just to our members who contributed to them, but also to folks who are engaging in these ecosystems. And I think it's so important as well, when you think of the principles-based approach to regulation, potential self-regulation, as well as the path forward in terms of how you describe the tokens, and that can have a huge impact on their classification as securities or not. And I was really excited to nerd out and talk with you on the analysis, particularly the first white paper titled U.S. Federal Securities and Commodity Law Analysis of Liquid Staking Receipt Tokens, which focuses on the regulatory issues surrounding the classification of liquid staking receipt tokens. And you walk through 
investment contract analysis, the notes analysis, as well as swaps under commodity law. And Mike and Justin, I appreciate your patience, but I'd love to turn it to you guys now to touch on the Howey analysis that you went through. And maybe we could briefly go through the prongs at a high level. What I thought was great about the paper was that you could have written a 300-page paper on this and condensing it down to a level that, as Alex mentioned, policymakers would be willing to read and are able to digest is not an easy task. So hats off to you on that one. I'd love to just get into that Howey analysis. Yeah, we can bounce back and forth. We, uh, we have a little bit of a routine here. Crypto assets are relatively new. The technology is new. The legal framework into which this particular arrangement fits is not new at all. It's been around for decades. And it's a framework that the SEC and the SEC staff have looked at in a variety of different contexts, going back to traditional commodity warehouses. And they've analyzed commodity warehouses within the investment contract analysis. Everybody in crypto talks about Howie, and everybody's a Howie expert because we have to be. But the SEC has been looking at commodity-based warehouse receipt arrangements in the context of the Howey test going back 50 or 60 years and has come out in a very clear way to say that these do not involve the issuance of investment contracts. And so the legal analysis, when you read the white paper, seems complex. It actually is not. The precedent here is crystal clear, and it fits really nicely into the way that these arrangements are set up. I'll spend 10 seconds explaining what the Howey test says, and then maybe Mike and I can go back through the elements as applied to liquid staking. But in brief, the Howey test says that you have an investment contract when you have an investment of money in a common enterprise, the reasonable expectation of profits based on the efforts of others. If you tick through the four prongs of the test, there some people disagree about whether they're four prongs or three prongs. But if you tick through the four prongs of the test and the way that most crypto lawyers think about them, we feel pretty strongly that that liquid staking arrangements fall on sort of the non-security side of the spectrum, notwithstanding the current views of the SEC chair and some of the staff. Our view is that legal issues in general applicable to crypto are challenging and not every token can be treated the same. But when it comes to liquid staking arrangements and token receipts, it turns out when, when you look at the law, even at a cursory level, the answer is pretty compelling. It pushes you towards the non-security side of the ledger pretty quick at a pretty quick pace. And so maybe I'll turn it over to, to Mike to walk through the elements and, kind of, and we can tease out why it is that we think the answer is fairly clear and supported by SEC precedent, not SEC staff precedent, but actual commission statements and case law here. Yeah, and I think this was a fun white paper to write just because there was so much precedent that we could actually look to as opposed to some of the other issues that we face every day where there's really nothing to point to. And it's a very nebulous and gray area. But here we were able to glom onto these SEC new action letters and some case law as well. But the, the one caveat I will add that important is that the underlying asset that's within digital warehouse, if you will, has to be a commodity. And so... In, in the case of any sort of asset, you're looking at whether that asset is a security under investment contract analysis or a Reeves analysis or what have you. Here, we're assuming for purposes of this white paper that we're dealing with digital commodities. Whether Gary Gensler agrees that there is such a thing aside from Bitcoin, our view, there are many assets like Ether that fit within that category of non-security digital commodities. And so to the extent you're taking a digital commodity 
and staking it through a, sta a liquid staking protocol, what you're doing, doing so is you're sending that asset to a smart contract and the smart contract automates the staking process for you and ends up depositing that in the deposit contract where it's locked and you're able to earn staking rewards in the same way that you would earn directly staking, except you're using this protocol. And so in our view, under the investment of money prong of the Howey analysis, never actually making an investment and giving title of your assets to some manager or some program, what you're doing instead looks a lot like typical staking when you're operating your own node. You're putting it into the contract and you're earning rewards from the network. And when you're doing so, you're not providing title, legal or beneficial title to anybody else. So it looks a lot different from, for example, if you have a staking program, an investment manager potentially owning those assets and able to kind of control legal and beneficial control over those assets and provide your reward that if those facts present themselves, that might be analyzed differently from one of these arrangements. And so under the investment of money prong, we really don't see any sort of investment being made where you're providing the assets to somebody for capital formation. Similarly, from a common enterprise perspective, there's not vertical or horizontal commonality because the pooling, if any sort of pooling is happening, it's in a fungible bulk in the same way that you're depositing your grain in a silo. It looks a lot like it's just storage of those assets. And by storing them in a common digital warehouse, you're able to satisfy any sort of minimum requirements to stake, such as 32 ETH on the Ethereum network. But that doesn't look any different from just choosing to put your stuff in a common silo and obtaining the kind of efficiencies that you would have by doing so. It's not the same sort of common enterprise that you would see in a business operation where there's some manager that kind of gets benefits from you depositing and your assets within their program. Moving on to the investment of money, the uh, expectation of profits prong. Similarly, we don't view these arrangements any different from typical staking. And so when you're staking, there is a an incentive to secure the network. So the more assets that are staked, the better network security. And so really what you're doing is contributing to the security budget of the network. There are non-economic reasons that you'd want to do that, especially, for example, if you're operating applications on the network and you want that network to be secure. But even if you were to consider these economic benefits from staking to be profits and how he sends, our view is that those benefits that you're getting are not derived from the efforts of others. So with a liquid staking protocol, typically that's something that operates autonomously on the network. It's a smart contract. There's no operator of that protocol in, in the sense of a program where you have a, a custodian or exchange operating a program. And even if you do have that sort of operator, based on all of these no action letters that we can get into a bit more, those efforts are really ministerial in nature. They're not the essential managerial efforts that derive the, the expectation of profits in that case, because all the operator is doing is maintaining these smart contracts, maybe obtaining slashing coverage, making sure that everything is secure. Those sorts of efforts are not what you're looking to when you want to earn your staking rewards. You're looking to the Ethereum network itself, if it's Ethereum, or the Tezos network itself, if it's on Tezos. The network generates those award, rewards based on a consensus mechanism, based on pre-programmed code. And so the operator of any sort of staking program has no control over that. And so based on our reading of the no action precedent, this is really no different from the cases where 
farmers took their stuff to a silo and asked the warehouseman to look after it and provide for insurance. And they might take it out later, they might leave it with the operator, but there's no expectation of profits based on the operator's efforts. Value proposition here in the same way that there's a value proposition with a silo is not in, in whatever support that the, the grain operator, silo operator, or the, the sponsor of a staking of a service all provides. It, in the case of staking, it's the value proposition attached to the blockchain. In the case of a grain silo, it's the value proposition attached to owning and selling grain in the secondary market and you know, potentially benefiting economically to a degree from whatever market forces are at play in the grain market. Here, the value proposition is tied to the protocol that is entirely unrelated to the sponsor of the service at issue here. So if, there's, if there is an other in the Howie sense, that other is, is not really doing something that, that you as a staking, as a staker or a liquid staker are really relying on for any value proposition to the extent there is value proposition. We think that's a, not necessarily a clear answer either. And we'll dive into the bailment legal argument. I want to talk about intangible assets versus tangible and why it should be the same principles when it comes to intangible assets. Before we do that, though, I want to touch a bit on static and dynamic receipt tokens to explain the difference between static and dynamic receipt tokens when it comes to liquid staking. So we distinguish in the white paper static receipt tokens and dynamic receipt tokens. And really what this refers back to is the A token model that Aave employs and the C token model that Compound employs. And the difference between these two types of tokens, the A token or a uh, dynamic token increases in the number of units through a rebase based on an increase in value. So if I have one unit of ether and I stake that ether and receive one unit of receipt, and that receipt starts to accrue network rewards, I would then receive additional units of that same receipt token. So I might have 1.01 units of the receipt. In the case of a C token model or a, a static receipt, you have the same number of receipt tokens. So if you stake one ETH, you now receive one receipt token, and it continues to be one receipt token, but the value of that receipt token increases to represent the additional units of network rewards that accrue since you've staked that unit. And that's typically done through an Oracle that is paired with the network. It's a very important point when you think of the difference between the types of assets that are being held in a bailment relationship in this case, not necessarily meaning that it doesn't work, but just comparing the no action letters to situations like this. I think, Justin, the point you underscored about where the assets are held and who's holding them, Mike, you did a great job explaining that as well. Could you walk through the SEC no action letters with that in mind, comparing the differences in this case with why this should fit in that bailment relationship? Yeah, so the SEC no action letters mostly dealt with gold bullion, and they were fairly straightforward in terms of the fact pattern. Had a warehouseman or a silo or a vault administrator just taking um, taking possession of gold bullion and issuing receipts, and the conditions were laid out in the no action letters were pr fairly straightforward. Um, in looking at the Howey test, they said, look, as long as 
the vault writer Baylor here is not providing people with the ability to purchase gold bullion on margin, as long as the provider services were limited to safeguarding the assets and issuing in recognition of the, the depositors, legal and beneficial ownership of the gold. And as long as the vault administrator, if you want to call it that, doesn't have a sort of outside contractual obligation to repurchase either the gold or the receipt tokens upon demand, from our vantage point, this does not look like the significant managerial efforts of others that are required in the Howey sense. And what we see when we look at the traditional liquid staking arrangement is that the facts line up almost identically for the most part in today's market. You don't have service providers allowing people to purchase the underlying commodity on margin. Um, traditionally, the product provider services are truly limited to safeguarding the staked assets and issuing receipts based on the protocol that the sponsors designed, or if it's decentralized based on the way the communities designed the protocol. And there is no repurchase obligation on the part of the on the part of the sponsor. When the staking participant delivers its receipt to request a redemption of the underlying um, staked asset, the asset is exchanged for the redemption of the receipt, or vice versa, and that's it. There's no there's no sort of secondary contractual obligation that kind of uh, that, that imposes upon either the sponsor, the participant, an obligation to do sort of an additional thing. You just you simply show up to the window and you deliver you you present your receipt and you're delivered your underlying asset. Very straightforward. So the facts at issue line up exactly from our vantage point with the three conditions that were spelled out in the old gold bullion cases. And I guess we would say that we don't see a whole lot of differences between what we have here and, and what the SEC and the SEC staff were looking at back in the 70s with gold bullion vault providers. I don't know if, Mike, you want to add on anything there to kind of drive home the point. And there's also a federal court case that I think is helpful here, NOAA v. Key Futures, where there was a, a program operator that sold receipts to silver and gold metals. And that was stored in a warehouse very similar to the warehouses at issue in the no action letters. And the operator also offered to buy back the receipts at the price of silver quoted in the Wall Street Journal on the day that you try to sell your receipt back. And even under those facts, where there was this buyback component, the court found that those efforts were not the essential managerial efforts because the price of silver was based on a decentralized market. It was based on the silver market, which is global in nature, just like the Ethereum market, any other of these digital commodity markets. And so even under the fact pattern where there's this buyback option, the court found that not to be a, an investment contract. So I think that's an interesting additional point that is helpful when analyzing these types of arrangements. And I think if you look at the fundamental purpose of the securities regime, right, full and fair disclosure and to protect investors and regulators look at it with that lens. And when you take an example of a gold deposit, you are still relying on the human to not commit fraud, not steal the gold bars that are underlying the certificate. I want to touch on the intangible aspect of it. To my knowledge, there's been no court that has considered whether crypto itself can be subject to a bailment. Am I missing examples or how do you think about that relationship given the analogy that can easily be made between digital assets, digital scarcity, and tangible assets? 
An important point is that the SEC in the no action letters and in the, you know, the key futures case, for example, the court not necessarily look for a legal bailment, whether each box of state common law definition of a bailment is checked. It was more the relationship and the mechanics of how that works. And so when you're purchasing a receipt that evidences your ownership of the physical commodity or providing a physical commodity to a warehouse and receiving that receipt, those types of arrangements have all of the features of a bailment, whether they meet that definition under common law or not, really that arrangement where the efforts of the bailor are in protecting and custodying the assets and maybe obtaining insurance on the assets and those sorts of things. But the relationship is not one of an investment manager or an investment relationship. And so those facts were important to us. We did not go down the rabbit hole of kind of trying to figure out if this meets the technical definition of a bailment in each of the 50 states. And there is some variation, like we've seen cases where you can have software on a flash drive and that can technically qualify as something that can be bailed under some state law. But it, it is a very much a contentious issue and question that we didn't try to resolve in this white paper. Yeah. And the, re the reason we didn't need to do that is because you don't have to find a bailment to conclude that there is a non-security at issue. It's not relevant to the Howey test. It's simply that when the SEC staff and the SEC has been presented with bailment relationships that are tied to underlying commodities, they've looked at the bailment relationship and said, you know what, that doesn't involve the essential managerial efforts that are central to the Howey, to, that are central to the Howey test. And therefore there's no investment contract associated with that type of arrangement. So it's just to be clear, it's, it's not that we need to establish a bailment. It's simply that we need to establish that there's no investment contract and we can point to a traditional bailment arrangement as good evidence that there is no investment contract at issue because a true bailer has the obligation to um, bailer bailey relationship has the obligation to safeguard the asset and return it upon demand and submission of the underlying receipt. And that's that. That is not the essential managerial relationship that people think about when they're thinking about traditional securities. It's different. I tend to use the example of buying a traditional share of common stock of a blue chip uh, company, right? When you are buying a share of IBM stock, or buying a share of Apple stock, you are making a bet on IBM or Apple's management, their, their board, their their IP, their R&D, all of the expertise that, that they have at their headquarters to drive value for shareholders. When, you're, when you are depositing a, a token into a liquid staking arrangement, you're not making a bet on the service provider or the sponsor. You're simply making a bet, if you want to call it that, on the value proposition attached to the underlying blockchain, which is completely disassociated from the sponsor here. Thank you, Justin. I think that's a great answer. I'd love to turn it to you, Alex or Allison, to touch on the higher level principles here. And when we do think of the risks, and I'm sure this is something that the four of you and the entire team at POSA has looked into, because in Canada, at least when we went this crypto contract route, it was in light of Quadriga failing. And regulators realized that this custodial aspect is a huge risk. So we need to have regulation in place to protect investors, consumers in this case. Are there risks that we as an industry can create regulation to protect consumers on when it comes to liquid staking arrangements? Let me jump in to say this first, and I say this in the context of more, it's funny to say more traditional staking as a service providers, but sort of, if you want to call them like Gen 1 staking as a service providers, but it would also apply to these liquid staking protocols. 
I think when we're talking about risk here, uh, a lot of the risks are technical, right? So in what Mike was talking about before, you're depositing your tokens into a smart contract. If you're going to engage service provider or liquid staking protocol to do this sort of technical service, which I do often because I don't want to be involved in running my own node, the types of due diligence that I'm going to do to select that provider or select that protocol are going to be more focused on technical risk than financial risk. And I think that gets to the heart of the services that these providers and protocols are providing. So I just want to say at the outset, before even getting into self-regulation and principles and things that I do think are very important, I think when we talk about risk more broadly, a lot of the risk here is technical. I don't think we should lose sight of it. That said, I do think it's very important, and POSA has thought it's been very important since the impetus of the organization, for our members and for various players in these proof-of-stake ecosystems to get together and say, if, if we're going to act responsibly and engage responsibly, what should be the rules of the road? And so even originally in 2019, when we first started talking about, all right, what does it look like to be a responsible staking as a service provider? We sat down with SEC. And we said, these are the types of technical services that we're planning to provide. What would make sense? What's the general advice that, that we should give to folks who are engaging in these services? And we sat down and you can see some people listened to us, some didn't, right? We said, you know, shouldn't be talking about offering yields or saying that we were going to give people percentages on top of what a protocol would spit out in terms of staking rewards, that we really should be focused on giving people access to these protocols, which is in essence what you're doing. A liquid staking provider is basically routing your stake to an available validator, right? So I think it's very important for us, and I hesitate to say as an industry, right, but people who are key players in these ecosystems to abide by certain principles and to honestly and accurately provide the services they're providing, but also that we should be accurately describing the risks that are really at the heart of this here. I, I think that touches too on, on kind of these staking rewards fundamentally are, and it's not an expectation of return. It is an anti-dilution incentive. So if these proof of stake networks are issuing a certain percentage of new tokens every year as determined by the network itself, if you're 100% staked, then no one is any better or worse off. So the higher percentage of a network that is staked, more this is a case of if everyone's special, no one is. You're incentivized to stake and uphold and validate the network so that your holdings don't get diluted. You're not necessarily trying to do it for some expectation of return. And so that, to, to what Allison is saying, is really crucial when we're, we're describing these services that are provided, um, where you're facilitating plugging into the network, whether you're, you're helping an institution that, that wants to engage, or if you're helping an individual who wants to engage, the service is the same. And the kind of contractual relationship between a staking as a service provider and a user is more akin to something that cloud service provider would be providing you, um, where you're looking at cyber risk and resilience and uptime or return to, to uptime. That is more of the kind of technical risk that you're examining as opposed to any sort of investment risk or expectation of return. And so that's one of the kind of key principles that we've tried to amongst our members and amongst other staking as a service providers and staking ecosystem participants 
uh, to really get out there and make sure that we're focusing on the right things and the correct thing, as opposed to trying to um, have flashy advertisements for something that this just fundamentally isn't. And to your point on that, Alex, I think part of the thing that gets lost sometimes and what bothers me a lot is we're starting to see staking just conflated with lending when they're two very different things or just the sheer fact that staking is viewed as generating yield, which is Alex just described, it's actually not. That means it falls into a particular bucket, I think is particularly troublesome. And part of the reason why I think it's particularly troublesome and one of the things we really try to drive home in our industry principles is because staking is crucial to the function functioning of these networks. In order for these networks to be maintained and to be secure, and of course we all know this, right? People need to stake their tokens and these proof of stake ecosystems don't function if people aren't staking and if you don't have a certain percentage of the network staked, the network is going to be a lot less secure if that happens and we need people to actively participate in doing that. I think that gets lost, this kind of base, these basics get lost in some of these conversations um, where you're just trying to make an easy analogy that staking, oh, might look like some other thing when really there's something crucially important going on here. And we need to make sure that doesn't get lost in these conversations. Yeah, that's also one of the reasons why POSA has spent so much time doing the legal analysis, coming up with industry principles, coming up with these kind of 101s for policymakers. Because if you look back at kind of all of the SEC's action over the course of the past couple of years, some of the comments from the chair, Chair Gensler has said basically, if it says APY, earn, so on and so forth, doesn't matter what it is, it's a security. I mean, that that is a sweeping generalization. And you look back at like what the BlockFi interest-bearing accounts were, and the SEC said that those were, were securities and settled with BlockFi as a result. What was happening on the back end of those bearing accounts is wildly different from your traditional staking as a service provider. There is managerial effort happening behind the scenes there. Um, what Genesis and Gemini were doing, or Gemini user were depositing tokens and it was being sent over to Genesis and Genesis was doing certain things, could be argued that's a security. But what your traditional staking as a service provider is doing is that technical service. It's very pure. It's just routing tokens to an available node and ownership claim of those tokens never changes. I still own those tokens it's still at that node. And if I want to retrieve it, I can at any time. The yield or, or rewards that I'm getting are a function of the blockchain and its continued operation and production of new blocks. It's not a, a, a function of whatever provider is uh, helping me do. And to go even further, Alex, it ties into Mike and Justin's point as well, where it is a function of the blockchain. It's also a function of the market. Any yield that you see in quotes from a monetary perspective, would be based on the market sentiment of that blockchain and of the tokens on that chain. It's not a set price. It's not a stable coin that you're staking and receiving a US dollar 4% return year over year. It's very different. And I think the four of you did a great job explaining that. The one thing I also want to touch on is that a securities analysis often gets confused when talking about investment contract. There are so many more definitions of a security under the Securities Act of 1933. There's also note under the Reeves test. And Mike or Justin, I thought I'd turn it to you to just speak on note as 
a security under the definition of federal securities laws and how and why this is an important analysis for liquid staking tokens. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, there's this other category of securities called notes and the test that the Supreme Court's articulated in a case called Reeves v. Ersten Young is known as the Reeves test. And it is essentially a presumption that any sort of note will be a security that is rebuttable if it satisfies certain criteria. And so when you, you look at a note, it meets kind of family resemblance to what's typically regulated as a security under the note moniker. You would presume that to be a note, but then you're able to rebut that by looking at four factors. So you look at the motivation of the buyer and the seller, the plan of distribution of the instruments, the reasonable expectations of the public who purchases that instrument, and other risk-reducing considerations. And this typically results in a discussion of whether there's an alternative regulatory regime, but need not necessarily be limited to that. And so in, in our in the white paper, we kind of threw each of these factors and thought through whether liquid staking receipts really fit within first this presumption that they should be treated as notes and then looking at each of the factors and trying to rebut that. Yeah, and I'm happy to walk through the factors. As, as Mike said, there's four of them. Reasonable motivations of the seller and the buyer. Generally speaking, if the seller's per, per purpose is to raise money for the general use of a business enterprise or to finance investments and the buyer's interested in profit, then the arrangement's going to result in a note. That's not what's going on in liquid staking. There's no buyer or seller to speak of. The contribution of the asset is the legal and beneficial ownership of the assets retained by the be buyer, if you want to call it that. It's not handed over to the sponsor to do with it what the sponsor wants, for example, to use use the staked asset to develop it, its business or its business prospects. That's not what's going on. But the plan of distribution of the instrument. So if the instrument is broadly offered to a large segment of the population, it's more likely to be deemed a security. For example, an underwritten note offering that's, you know, that's offered pursuant to an, an indenture. You, know, you see notes trading in the market on a liquid basis. Obviously, those are notes. They're treated as notes. They're registered securities. Um, but when you, when you have an instrument that is limited in scope in terms of who it's offered to, it's less likely to be a security. That's, you'd argue that, that your liquid stoke, liquid king receipt tokens are not offered to a broad segment. The population, in fact, the only person, the only types of, of individuals who can actually get liquid staking receipt tokens are people that have assets to stake. And so it's not the, it's not the case that you can offer to the entire investing public, if you will, and you're going to get significant uptake. It's people who have, uh, who have possession of assets of tokens that are native to proof of stake blockchains and they want to participate in securing the network and they want some liquidity while they participate in the staking protocols. Um, so it's a very segment of the greater population, but in particular, a discrete segment of the sort of investing community within crypto as well. If, again, if you want to think of it as an investing community. Reasonable expectation of the investing public, third factor that we look at. The investing public is likely to view the instrument as a security, as traditional security. It's obviously more likely to be a security. Um, our experience is that most liquid staking protocols are very careful in the way that they push out marketing collateral and the way that they describe their services so as not to suggest that it confers any investment-like treatment, which wouldn't be the case anyway. If you look at the underlying facts, you're not participating in staking and getting an investment-like return for all the reasons that we've discussed over this past few minutes. Um, 
but but we don't see a significant risk of someone looking at this and saying, oh, this is an investment other than sort of just an opportunity to participate in a protocol uh, and securing a network. Obviously, there are people that in, that will stake their tokens to, to earn rewards, but, but those are ancillary to the overall sort of value proposition associated with staking generally. And then the fourth factor is the presence of a risk-reducing factor. I said that the focus historically has been on whether or not there's a another regulatory regime that exists such that the protection of the federal securities laws isn't necessary. We've been focusing our discussion today on liquid staking protocols that are available to commodity-based tokens. And in the case of commodity-based tokens, the CFTC has broad anti-fraud manipulation regulatory authority over the market and has brought numerous enforcement actions involving involving assets that are available on proof-of-stake networks. Um, the other thing that, that courts have looked at in the past in terms of a risk-reducing factor is whether there is collateral or some sort of security interest that backs the, the would-be note, if you want to call it that. And that is certainly the case here, where you're contributing a token into a protocol and receiving a receipt token that you can surrender in redeem for the underlying token itself. So um, there is one for one collateral, if you want to call it that, securing your receipt token that's always available to you when you when you show up at the window, so to speak, and redeem out your, your underlying staked assets. So we would say that there is in fact a risk reducing factor in the form of in the form of the underlying tokens that that the staker has contributed into the protocol. Uh, so all of those, all four factors in our view, weigh in favor of a non-note designation. And we think there's strong case law and other precedent that, that supports those arguments and conclusions. And before we get to the principles-based approach, the self-regulation that we could see in the future and the policy work that needs to be done, I wanted just to quickly touch on swaps. And I think the idea of investment contracts, notes, and swaps being all considered is a good example of how this industry is so novel and a problem like this touches on so many different areas of law in a way that we've never before seen and really doesn't even fit into anything perfectly. It touches on aspects of the different areas. And I thought what you wrote on swaps was excellent in clearly delineating the difference between ownership of the asset versus exposure to the price risk. So we don't really have to touch on it for too long, but Mike or Justin, could you just explain what swaps are and why the CFTC regulates them and the purpose behind it and why that's not well-suited for liquid staking? Swaps are a type of derivative instrument. They typically had traded over the counter pre-Dodd-Frank and after the Dodd-Frank Act. We had what are called swap execution facilities, and swaps began trading as well on on futures exchanges, DCMs. And swaps are are really contracts that are designed to hide exposure to price risk so that you can hedge those risks. So if you're a farmer, you might have risk related to your physical commodities, your crops, and if you're a rancher, your farm animals, you would enter into contracts to hedge that risk, lock in a specific price that you can sell those assets at in the future. And so we also have options, another type of swap or within the swap definition, but the swap definition is quite broad. It has three prongs. And those prongs include options, as I just mentioned, as well as event contracts like prediction markets where you're um, paid out based on the outcome of an event of financial consequence. And then you also have these synthetic instruments under the third prong that really just provide exposure without ownership. 
So you're exposed to the future price of Apple stock, but you don't own the Apple stock and you might receive dividends based on that, basically a payment based on the dividends or price appreciation in the stock. And so warehouse receipts historically have never been treated as swaps because they are legal and beneficial ownership of something stored with a warehouse. And similarly here, when you're just depositing assets into a contract and those assets are being routed to be staked, there is never this transfer of ownership or exposure to the price. And so there's been this misnomer really that liquid staking receipt tokens are liquid staking derivatives. And that's really been something that that concerned us because there is also an anti-evasion prong of the swap definition where you're just calling something a swap that can cause it to be regulated as a swap. But really, unlike any swap on the market, you own the underlying assets outright. You have legal and beneficial ownership of that. Your receipt just evidences that. And so it's unlike any sort of swap product that currently trades. And we also looked at some of the the commercial market and more exclusions from the swap definition. And these are rarely really looked at in a financial context when you're analyzing financial products. But here, the average person staking is sitting at home and staking so that they can secure the network. And they might be you know, trading NFTs on the network or using DeFi applications. I mean, these are real consumers and users. And then you also have commercials that are using to basically hedge the risk of being diluted as well as to, to hedge the risk of the network security failing on them. So these really do fit pretty well into some of the exclusions for commercial and consumer use cases because the receipt is really just a commercial instrument or a consumer instrument that evidences their ownership of something. Thank you for that explanation, Mike. And POSA also authored a second paper touching on the tax analysis of liquid staking. And Allison, I'll turn this to you. Just to touch on what the paper described, it examined whether the conversion of a liquid staker's crypto assets for liquid staking receipt tokens should be treated as a taxable transaction. And what were the results of the paper? We'll link it in the show notes for people who want to read more about it. I know you're not a tax attorney, but I thought it'd be good just to give a high level overview of what the paper was about and what the conclusion was. Yeah, not a tax attorney, but for purposes of grabbing this paper, often play one on TV and when talking to regulators and lawmakers. So incredibly high level, maybe just to back up a second, Treasury and IRS have not issued any guidance on liquid staking. They haven't even issued any guidance on staking, though they have said that they do plan to take it up this year. We haven't seen anything yet. We've been working on how staking rewards generally should be taxed. And we argue that they should be taxed not at the time of creation, but at the time of disposition. There are good reasons for that that we can get into. I can give you some pieces to link to. But when we were looking at these liquid staking receipt tokens and whether a taxable event occurs when you move from the underlying token to the receipt, token, the analysis basically rests on the fact that because there is no transfer of ownership of the token, no sale or disposition is occurring. And if you look generally speaking under general tax principles, because again, we're not looking at any specific guidance here, there is only a taxable event if there is a sale or disposition of this asset in exchange for property that would differ materially from it. And in this case, because there is no transfer of ownership at all, we don't believe that there is a taxable event that has occurred. And that's generally speaking argument that the paper makes. It gets into some other things that I think are very interesting, but that's the the incredibly high level on it. 
Well, that's a fantastic result. I, I had a tax attorney, a couple tax attorneys on over the past couple of weeks, and it was amazing to see the breadth of what constitutes a taxable transaction, especially in the crypto space. So, so that's comforting to hear. I want to touch on the principled approach and particularly the tech side. And Allison, you mentioned earlier about the risks associated with this. They are less financial investment risk, but more tech related risks when it comes to the underlying code being run, who could be liable in the event that there were issues with the code itself. How is POSA thinking about those ideas? What are some paths forward for the industry on that? Yeah, I think as an industry, I'm kind of saying that as an industry, we have to start doing ourselves some favors, right? And so in terms of being responsible actors in the space, some of the things that you have to be very careful to describe how these things and take responsibility, I think, on the tech side. So while our industry principles historically, and even given these recent liquid staking papers, have focused more on the way that we are describing, I guess, what is happening. We also want to be careful to say, like, let's say in the case of liquid staking, for example, one of the principles that we've said is we want to make sure that we're developing tools that enable direct staking with access to liquidity, not staking back yield products. And if we're doing that and we're ensuring that those are being developed responsibly, then we should feel good, I think, about, about bringing those products to market in the case of a company that's doing it or in the case of a general ecosystem that's come together and sponsoring those open source tools, they should feel good about that as well. So I think it's the combination of those two things and what really are our priorities and how can we make sure they're, we're developing these things as responsibly as we possibly can that will help us move forward as an industry. By the way, also calling them what they are. So one of the big pushes surrounding these papers was to get people to move away from using the phrase LSDs, which has become frequently used on crypto Twitter, and actually calling these things what they are, which are liquid staking tokens, right, or LSTs. And to the extent that we can be responsible in describing these things, describing the technical risks that truly are associated with them, but developing things responsibly, I think we can help these staking ecosystems take a big step forward. Yeah, I think that touches too on what I said earlier around, you have to think through the policymakers and the amount of time that they're, they're spending on things. And if you're calling something a liquid staking derivative, you, even if it isn't, you're immediately playing from behind. Um, they're going to see the word derivative and they're going to say, oh, well, there's a really robust existing derivatives regulatory framework. So let's go try and stick this into that. And that's just not consistent with what these things actually are, which is just a receipt for tokens that you're staking on a protocol. So really important, not only for the industry to align on, on terminology, but also it has kind of ripple effects for how our industry and some of these constructs that have been created uh, end up being regulated and ultimately how successful and viable they will be going forward. Because we can see already some of the impacts of misregulation or overregulation or certain there's a few different proposed bills that would require validator nodes to register as money services businesses in the U.S. And that's a case of, it's not a matter of won't comply, it's a matter of can't comply. And if you have rules that force folks to try to comply with something that they have no actual way of complying, then all of that just moves offshore. And in America, this we're talking from a kind of U.S.-centric view here. Uh, misses out on on a lot of this innovation and a lot of the, the jobs and economic activity that that follow. So terminology, it's it's so small, but it it uh it can have huge huge impacts. And I think one thing I would add to that is 
while there's been a lot of talk about regulation by enforcement, which I think we can all agree is bad, while we're waiting for rulemaking and formal guidance and legislation, there are things that we can proactively do as an industry. When the Kraken settlement was announced, Commissioner Peirce, in her dissenting statement from the agency, said this kind of regulation need not come from a rulemaker and cited our industry principles. If we can get together and say, this is what's actually going on here. This is the way we should be describing it. This is how to act, uh, how to responsibly engage. To Alex's point, the shortcut then works in our favor versus having to take a step back like we've done with staking, right? Because we've used staking as a term to mean so many different things at this point that now I have to sit down and just go back to very basics in terms of definitions to say, I'm talking about providing access to a protocol and engaging in these particular activities, not doing X, Y, Z, other things that people have used that term to describe. So again, I think this goes to, yes, regulatory clarity, important, rulemaking, important, guidance, important, legislation, important, but equally important are industry principles that we can come up with ourselves because we do know the technology best at the end of the day. So important. And I think it's that illustrates the area we all find ourselves in that you want government buying as well, but you also need industry participation and alignment on these principles. And Alex, from your perspective, coming from the policy side, are there precedents throughout history we can look at where there has been two buckets at once that need to align on an area like this? And if so, what can we do to get there? If not, how are we approaching this? How can we approach this in a way to provide a path forward for the industry rather than regulation by enforcement or firms going in and speaking with the commissioners or the SEC or CFTC and not finding answers, but finding a knock on their door six months later with a Wells notice? So I think throughout history, there is no shortage of new technologies and no shortage of regulators and policymakers trying to get up to speed. And again, all of these policymakers have a whole slew of different new issues and new technology and new problems that they need to deal with, along with kind of the day-to-day demands of their jobs or their constituents. And where, where crypt is really complex is you not only have the kind of technology side where you have decentralized global computing networks, um, you also have the financial side. You have changes and, and custodians and things that look a whole lot like traditional finance. And then you have somewhere in between DeFi, where you have a mix of both and it's both and it's neither, and it doesn't fit neatly into any definitions of anything. And so seemingly for the first time, we have something that touches on such a broad swath of jurisdictions where you have banking regulators, you have markets regulators, you have the FTC, you you have the House Financial Services, Senate Banking, House Ag, Senate Ag, House Energy and Commerce, Senate Commerce, House Ways and Means, Senate Finance. Every single committee has a piece of this. Every single committee wants a piece of this, and they oversee the regulators that want their own piece of this. And so whereas automobile might be pretty narrowly focused on by, by one or two committee and maybe one or two regulators, you have something that spans almost the entire federal government. And so you have, I think, un- unlike some folks in D.C. seem to think, there isn't just one or two major players in the space. There isn't some like kind of war council or illuminati of the crypto industry. It's a massively decentralized global industry 
And some companies or DAOs or DeFi protocols have uh, participants or employees, depending on the body, spread across the globe. Um, so it, it is like nothing that has come before. And unfortunately, that means that we run into a bunch of complex jurisdictional issues and fights. I also think that the industry, as Allison said earlier, we need to start doing ourselves some favors. The industry hasn't done itself very many favors over the course of the past year. And it, it can be argued that most were doing the right thing. And there was a few bad apples that unfortunately spoiled the bunch and poisoned the well to some extent with folks in DC who were maybe just getting up to speed or were just getting curious about this. But it's incumbent upon the industry to do the hard work, coalesce around these industry principles, to, to clean itself up, to, to think through tech solutions for thorny solutions that policymakers maybe try to wrestle with, but because of jurisdictional issues can't adequately address. I think a lot of blockchain analytics companies and on exchange analytics companies and audit firms and all of the kind of compliance area of crypto, that tooling is still being built up, but that provides for such a greater degree of control and such a greater degree of kind of assurance for any given user when they're interacting with a smart contract that they know that it's a safe contract to interact with. And so to some extent, we have to innovate our way out of a lot of these problems around hacks and scams and so on, and ultimately come to the table as honest brokers who are here to be part of the solution, not part of the problem as some in DC would paint us out to be. It's an uphill battle and it starts with education. I think you've alluded to that. Policymakers don't have much time and the ability to explain to them why it's not a derivative, why it's a token and aspects of that. Justin and Mike, in terms of risks and thinking through potential areas that POSA is focusing on, that the industry at large should focus on when it comes to staking generally, are there areas where the two of you are particularly, I don't want to use the word worried, and I'll cut that just in case Gensler's listening, but in terms of areas that we should focus on to find congruence between all of us on what maybe it's terminology, maybe it's operation, maybe it's smart contract audits. Are there particular areas that, that you think we should be most focused on? Yeah, I mean, I, so look, I think the legal framework as we went through is pretty clear. Liquid staking arrangements fit nicely into settled precedent on the security side and also on the commodity side. Um, the swaps analysis, I think, is fairly clear. What worries me, and I think I'll, I can speak for Mike, what worries Mike as well, are sort of these soft factors that we've been talking about over the last five or 10 minutes here. The optics, the atmospherics, the industry sort of being its worst enemy, its own worst enemy in a way, by not being disciplined in the way they describe calls, by allowing, by allowing sort of press and attention around the bad actors to overshadow things like like efforts that folks like Alice and Alex are focused head on about, which is developing sensible principles that for self-governance and developing a regulatory framework for policymakers to latch on to. So I don't worry about the legal analysis because I, I truly believe that it's solid. And the other thing that I feel confident about is that the SEC is and the CFTC are our principal regulators in 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 this space, but they're not the ultimate arbiters of what the law actually mean. And if you get 
some of these issues in front of what, what we call Article Three judges feel like the law is on our side and clearly on our side in a lot of these issues. But again, it's the risk of scrutiny that worries me. And the risk of scrutiny is driven largely by avoidable mistakes, marketing products in a way that just don't make sense, um, promising uh, returns or promising features that can't be delivered. It's really the industry getting ahead of itself and not being sort of disciplined in the way that that these products are described to the broader ecosystem, but more importantly, to policymakers and the regulators. Yeah, I think in particular, around 2019, 2020, with the DeFi summer, when we had all of these yield farming applications, and now we're seeing this in the case of NFTs as well, where there's farming of tokens that are being offered to persons that are trading NFTs, there's really been this drive to offer more and more value to people that use certain applications as a way to, to draw them to those applications. And I think there's a bit of greed there in that we're getting a little bit away from the offering of real technical products and services and really trying to compete in terms of offering more yield and financial rewards. And it's concerning in the context of a program operator, of course, where you have this centralization and you're offering fixed yield and APY and all that sort of stuff. And that's been something that regulators have looked at for a long time in all sorts of contexts. But here, where there's this new phenomenon of making money by making money, where you can just print more tokens and reward people that come to your protocol, there is this negative connotation, I think, that the regulators have with some of these DeFi applications and protocols and staking programs. There's all sorts of liquidity attack and so much going on that I think the regulators are wrongly concerned with some of the, the good actors in the space and maybe not as focused as they need to be on a lot of these bad actors that are really just out to kind of attract users to their protocols in ways that create incentives for people to join. They're kind of bridges to nowhere, whereas staking provides real meaningful security for layer one networks. And it's a core really function of these networks to, to provide that security and to have a consensus mechanism that works. And I think that this transition of many of the networks and really Ethereum being the biggest one, but there's many of these proof of stake networks now that, that proof of stake is almost becoming synonymous with blockchain. Really, when we think proof of work, we think Bitcoin, which was you know, the OG network, but now we've got so many of these proof of stake networks and that this should not really be lumped together with a lot of the yield farming and other things. And so it's important, uh, as everyone on this call has just said, to, to be careful about marketing and really not try to do too much and offer too much because that, that starts to look suspicious and frankly raises a lot of the concerns around who is providing the, these new tokens and what are they to do as opposed to Ether and other tokens on these proof of stake networks that purchase block space. I mean, that, that's what they're there for. They provide security for the network. They have a value based on people wanting to write information to the chain. And, uh, and that's a real utility. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a classic case of just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. <laughs> and I, and looking back, I was just actually reviewing the, the principles we originally came up with. Refrain from investment advice. Use non-financial terminology. Do not use words such as interest, dividend, or yield. Focus on network security and participation, access to the protocol. Don't provide guarantees on amount of rewards earned. I mean, what a different place we'd be in today, I think, if more people had 
heated those. So I think some of this is about going back to basic. We really have to go back and define what staking is, what staking as a service is, all of these other, other things that I just mentioned. But I also think we have to get out in front of things that have already been developed, right? So like that's part of the reason why I think these liquid staking papers were incredibly important. We're starting to do some work on MEV because I think this is another area where people are starting to make analogies in terms of what's going on there when this is actually incredibly complicated. I'm not even going to speak about how this actually functions because I am no expert, but we need to get those experts in the room with people who are crafting the arguments before people start to make shortcuts in their brain in the same way they've done historically. So we're at this unique moment where I think we both have to look backwards and correct a lot of the misconceptions and go back and say, like, staking is not yield farming, is not all of these other things. But also, as these technological innovations continue to progress, because they are, this is happening, whether, pe whether people think they can just shut this all down, it, it's not, that's not going to happen. Th this will continue and people will continue innovating. And so we need to look at basically what's coming next and ensure that what we've done here doesn't happen again, right? That we kind of out in front of these issues that are coming and just accurately describe what's coming next, I think, in these ecosystems. So it's a little bit, um, I don't know if offense and defense is the right analogy, but definitely looking backward and looking forward. Yeah, I think it's also really key, and this is something that we've worked really hard at with POSA, is to not only do the hard work on the legal analysis side, do the hard work in trying to... Um, bring our membership and others in the industry into alignment on some of these principles, but also have the conversations with folks on the Hill and at the regulatory agencies about what these services are and what they aren't and what clear legal legislative delineation of these structures should look like, how they should think about it when crafting this legislation. There'll be a few large legislative packages out of the House and the Senate in the next few months anticipating and hopeful to see that there will be some clearer spelling out of what staking and staking as a service is and how it should be thought of. Because right now, the industry is basically just going off of whatever they see coming out of the SEC and um, waiting for the next shoot to drop and the next one as the SEC tries to paint a finer and finer point on what they think staking is and why that should fall under their remit. So we're happy to say that there are plenty of folks that we have spoken with on the Hill who um, are doing the hard work themselves to understand this technology and to write really thoughtful and sensible legislation um, to ensure that it's properly enshrined into kind of American legal code. But that that is a, an ongoing process and it is certainly a complicated and fraught one. So that is something where the industry also needs to be very serious about engaging and trying to be constructive as we all move forward on this together. And I think this conversation is a perfect example in that you aren't reinventing the wheel from a regulatory perspective. You are taking existing laws, things like bailment, and you're applying them to a new asset and tweaking it where necessary to have a principles-based approach to regulate assets in a way that achieve the goal of overarching regulatory schemes and if you take that approach, it's a net positive for everyone, particularly for the industry participants, which the government is there to protect. So I think the work that you all are doing at POSA is so important. This has been a great conversation. So thank you all for taking the time. Before we do, Allison, I'd just like to hear about how people can support POSA, what types of members you have, how can people get involved, and how we can build a self-regulatory framework here. 
Yeah, so as I mentioned at the top, POSA is a membership organization. If you're interested in becoming a member, you can go to our website, proofofstakealliance.org, click the button, fill out a very quick form. We'd be happy to have you guys on board. You can also email me directly, allison at proofofstakealliance.org. Allison spelled the proper way with one L and one I. And I'm happy to have conversations with anyone out there that is interested in becoming a member. As of right now, a lot of our members are organizations that represent proof of stake blockchains, liquid staking protocols, people who are seeking as a service providers, people who are developing new and innovative technologies in the staking space. We're also going to be doing a larger grassroots push. So more information on that coming soon, because we need all voices, not just some of the larger ones. So we're excited about doing that work. And uh, as you said, Jacob, and I'm channeling Mike here, what we really are looking for is technology neutral application of existing law. We're not looking for special treatment. We're not, we're just looking for what's sensible. And we want to make sure that this proof of stake technology can continue to thrive here in the US and globally. So that's the mission. And we'd love to have you guys involved. We'll link all that in the show notes. We'll have the two papers on tax and the regulatory analysis from a securities perspective there, as well as where you can find Alex, Mike, Justin, and Allison on Twitter. Again, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. It was a lot of fun. And we'll have you on again sometime to hear about the progress with the grassroots push because it is an important initiative. And it seems like these next few years will be a reckoning for the industry. And it's important to get it right, not just to have legislation in place. We've seen with Dow laws throughout the US and particular states where they're well-intentioned, but are they being used and are they achieving the goals? Maybe that's not always the case. So looking forward to what's next from POSA. Again, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you.